All this whistling, it's like you're making bird calls. You're trying to summon <laughs> your forest friends. Can I say? I'm not going to make a joke about Canadian birds on the show. I refuse, <laughs> I refuse to take that opportunity. So. so, yeah, we're all back for the first time in what feels like a little while. We, we actually have the gang back together on the show. Yoo-hoo, I'm here, people. Dying in, dying in hot Spanish heat, though, I hear. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been pretty unusually hot these, these past few days here in Spain. And it's going to get even worse over the next few days. So I'm, I'm a bit jealous of your Canadian temperature right now. Yeah, it's been uh, cooler than... I mean, we had a very hot summer here. I don't know about you, Josh, over there, but we've, we've had a lot of like really, really crazy temperatures. And now this week, it's finally dropped back to a more like comfortable summer, pleasant... Yep temperatures so i'm i'm very happy with that fall time temperatures yeah nice you bet i can't believe this but the leaves are turning orange which means that like it's easily the best time of the year to take the camera outside it's not you know dreadedly hot and it's portrait lens time man yes it is i remember last last year everyone was super mad that the body is 85 still hadn't shipped in volume because many people ordered it uh, you know they were planning to take these gorgeous pictures in the autumn with the red leaves and everything. And they couldn't because the, their lenses didn't arrive in time. And the, many of the complaints <laughs> that I read would, were because of that. Like, oh man, it's going to arrive when the leaves are falling off already. What do I want it for now? <laughs> so, yeah. Seasonal lens usage. Yes. That's, uh, that's an interesting problem. It is. It is. It's a nice one to have. Definitely. Well, speaking of, of lenses and lenses showing up and all that good stuff, um, I can't, honestly, I cannot believe this is the case, but um, Sony has revealed another 50 millimeter lens. No. Um, it's, I, I can't, like, it was, it was funny, and now I'm just sort of shaking my head at it. Um, <laughs> we did the count. We did the count for the record. There are now 10 native 50 millimeter or so lenses for the E-mount. 10. Uh, which is which is crazy. Yeah. Hi, sir. I would like to buy a 50 millimeter lens. Okay, which one? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but they say choice is good, don't they? Not in this case. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know I what they know. all do differently. Yeah, at this point, it's getting a bit ridiculous. Like, seriously. Especially when you consider that they still have plenty of important gaps in the lineup. So at, at, at some point, they're going to have to realize that people shoot with other focal lens you know besides 50 millimeters maybe we're wrong maybe people don't like maybe that's the actual issue is they're finding that people only buy 50 mil lenses so they just keep making more and more of them because once you've sold someone a 50 mil lens how do you get them to buy more stuff if they don't want a different focal length you gotta give them different 50 mil lenses to find gotta go where the market is yeah definitely but this one is a little bit different though right just slightly different like it's a macro lens yeah, this one's a macro, so at least there's something different about it. But they already have a macro lens, and it's widely considered among the best lenses for the system, so it's not like there was pressure there to release another macro lens. Twice as much money. Twice as much money. Is it, right? Like, the, the 90 millimeter is, what, is it a thousand US dollars or somewhere in that range? Yeah. And this one was only like 450 or 500 bucks, something like that? Yeah, it's roughly twice as much. So, like, this one is a little bit different. Perhaps. Perhaps. That's fair enough. And then... Since it is a shorter focal length, it gives you, like, you can show a little bit more of the background blur that right, people right. look for in a macro lens. It's like an entry level, entry level macro lens. Yeah. There just happens to be at fifty, fifty millimeters. You know all. what strikes me about this lens? You know, I've been, I've been sort of thinking about its positioning within Sony's little lineup, and 
I almost feel like it could be a good kit lens or or like your next step up from a kit lens because I'm thinking of people who, um, you know how it, the, the advice is to go from your little crappy kit zoom to a 50 mil prime right and a lot of a lot of the stuff that people like to shoot um initially when they get uh, a prime because they're like oh my goodness shallow depth of field is a thing yes it is um they shoot flowers they shoot (laughs) uh things like that and it's like this is the perfect lens to help them get that kind of shot because they'll be inevitably they'll be trying to get closer i don't know if if you guys have the same experience but generally when when i see people trying to take photos of like flowers or, or, or close-ups or whatever they're really trying to get a lot closer than their lenses will typically allow them to focus from yeah um so this you know giving them a lens like this they get the benefits of a prime it's not you know it doesn't go as wide open as some of the ones that um you know like the 1.4s of the world and things like that but it's it's still going to give them a decent amount of of uh, subject separation right but they'll be able to shove it right into the flower that they want to photograph and uh, you know sort of have fun doing that and because it's priced the way it is this is a much more accessible lens than so many of the other great glass options in the sony ecosystem that are unfortunately just not really in a price range that a lot of people are able to look at when they're just sort of right. uh, amateurs or, or general enthusiasts rather than actual you know, professional photographers. Right. There's something weird about this lens, though. Uh, and this is where things get a little bit nerdy. This lens features some of the nice hardware switches and buttons that we've seen before in high-end Sony lenses, like the G Master lenses and the G lenses. But it's not a G lens. It, it, it hasn't been labeled within the G collection, which is supposed to be Sony's high-end range of lenses. And that makes me wonder if they're going to retire that that label altogether and they're just going to leave the G Master. Because this is, it, I mean, it has everything. It has a, an, an AF-MF uh, switch, it has a fo- focus halt button, and it has a focus range uh, button. So it's it looks like a high-end lens, definitely. And the price point, okay, it's not $1,000, but it's not cheap either. At 500 bucks, it's for a 50 mil lens. That's that's reasonable, but it's not cheap by any by any means. Well, we'll probably find out a little bit more in a few weeks when they release another 50 millimeter lens at Photokina. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> that was another interesting thing about this lens's release is that it just sort of appeared. Um, I I don't know. I didn't notice any rumors that um, they were doing it um, or anything like that. It's just one one morning we had the press release and it was like, boom, hello, there's a brand new 50 mil. So. There you go. You know, there was a little topic there, like an article that Sony Alpha Rumors or something, somebody put out where one of their, one of the Sony's top end guys had said that they wouldn't release a lens without a camera body from now on. And then this one came out like a week later. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, yeah. good scoop guys. Yeah. A little bit of mixed messaging there. (laughs) It does seem like an interesting lens. I mean, I, I, I hopefully will be able to try one, um, in the coming weeks because, um, I'd be very curious. I mean, I like macro lenses in general. I, I think they're a lot of fun to shoot with. And um, quite frankly, this is this seems like a very good all-round lens for people who are in uh, Sony land. So, you know, we'll see. Like you guys said, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start to get reviews relatively soon. Yeah. And uh, hopefully there'll be new bodies to attach it to as well. Oh, my fingers are crossed. But I have to wait until after Christmas. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. Go ahead. Treat yourself. My money's on Mario's here. It's a good bet. <laughs> what else is on the news docket this week? Like, I hear one of my uh, good friends has his hands on a on a model or a, 
what am I trying to say here? Has his hands on a model. <laughs> oh. This is a PG show, Josh. <laughs> let's, yeah. cut, let's cut this out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he has his hands on a camera that we just kind of tore apart in our very early days. And now he's kind of proving us all wrong. Do tell, do tell. Uh, yeah, well, okay. So I have uh, in front of me uh, an Olympus Pen F and I, I can't stop touching it oh uh, (laughs) there we go again with the pg rating (laughs) uh it's a problem it's a problem this is this is a um an extremely well-built camera i i remember we were talking about um how we love the build like the fit and finish and build quality of the olympus em5 mark ii which uh, i agree with josh that it's probably like the most um solid and well-built feeling camera that I've shot with. Um, Somehow this Pen F manages to exceed it in terms of just, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's basically like everything that's great about the EM5 Mark II in terms of build quality, but just a little bit more refined. Um, And it's just such an attractive camera. I mean, we, we sort of knew that even from the pictures, but um, you know, now that it's in my hand and I'm, I'm sort of shooting with it, uh, it's, uh, I understand the appeal and I think that I wonder if maybe some of the, the cost, which is what we were mainly concerned with, um, when we were whining about it earlier is, uh, is down to this level of just material quality. I, I wonder if that's the part of the explanation behind it because it's, it's uncommonly well-made. So like, I'm just going to clarify here. You're referring more to like a refined build, correct? Like all of the, um, what do they call those things like variances and so on? Like all the switches, they switch properly and all the dials turn and like there's no leg or, or that's what you're referring to, right? Because this camera's not weather sealed. So like we're not talking durability, are we? No, we're not talking durability, although it does feel like a tank, but it's not it's not so much that it's that there's the, the tolerances are just perfect. Like nothing, nothing wiggles, nothing is loose or, or sort of flimsy feeling. Everything feels like it's built out of the best possible material for that part. And it, it makes a difference. Like it's, it just feels like a more professional camera and it's arguably not a professional camera because of, you know, some of the features, but it just feels like one. And that's, that's very satisfying. Um, and it's also, you know, one of the things that concerned me about it is the lack of a grip on the front because it's modeled after the old film cameras before they realized that people have hands. <laughs> and so I, I was expecting it to be less uh, easy to hold, but because of the way that they've made the thumb grip um, on the back end of it, it's actually pretty good. And it's a light camera. Like, I, I think it's a, it's a problem when you start putting bigger lenses on it. Right. Um, but like, like we said before, this is not the sort of camera that I see myself attaching a 300 mil prime two, right? Like this, there, there's a certain- Why not? You got to go birding with that pen F, man. <laughs> yeah, that was the lens that the guys from the camera store TV used to test the, the camera. So yeah. Yeah, they tore it apart. Yeah, that was a little ridiculous <laughs> to me. I mean, that's, that's just a strange choice. Uh, I do not have that lens with me. I do have the Olympus 25 mil, um, their 60 mil macro, uh, and also my 45 prime and the 12 to 40 pro zoom. So I have a fair range of lenses that I've been trying on it and most of them perform well. I've been a little let down by the, uh, autofocus performance of the 25, but I'm not sure if that's a lens thing or, or something with the pen F because I've, I've been trying, um, some of the other lenses and the autofocus performance does seem to be better 
with those lenses. So it might just be a, a matter of the 25 being a little less. How is it with the pro zoom? It's great. It's great. It's a little front heavy. Fast, snappy. Yeah, it's a little front heavy in terms of uh, just weight distribution, um, but it's it's a very good combo and it's a very versatile, you know, the, the 12 to 40 is such a great lens in general to have with you because it covers the most useful focal ranges and it's just optically superb. Um, it's You can't go wrong with that lens. Yeah, that's a 20 megapixel camera, right? It is, yeah. I, I was looking at files actually, so I've, I've only had it for a few days as we're recording this and I, I just yesterday was looking at the files in Lightroom and starting to, you know, pixel peep essentially to see what what we're working with here. Um, I will say that the resolution difference is noticeable. I was a little worried because um, a lot of the reviews said that it's basically, ah, it doesn't make that much of a difference. I think it does. Right. I, I think it does. There's, there's just enough extra detail being resolved here. Um, and I especially notice it on um, shots where you're working with a prime lens, you're getting like a lot of details, optically speaking, the files are resolving a lot. And if you decide to go in and do some micro contrast sharpening work, like I can easily see these files um, standing up to large size printing with noticeably better results than the 16 megapixel micro four thirds sensor would. So I was pleased to see that. That was something I wasn't expecting, um, but it's it's been a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I I think my biggest complaint image-wise, so far at least, is just that um, low light hasn't really improved. Right. So both in terms of um, like noise levels, but also in terms of autofocus performance, uh, it's just not great. As soon as the light starts fading, uh, so does the performance. And that's something that I kind of forgot was a thing because I've been shooting with the X-Pro2 and for some reason that camera seems to be just fine in low light, including focusing and acquiring focus. Um, so I feel maybe a little spoiled. Hmm. Uh, but this is uh, this is not really a knock against the Pen-F because it's not like it's unusable or anything like that. I, I think some other reviews have exaggerated the the issue. I do find it noticeably different. I do find it a little more, um, a little less confident, I think is probably the best way to put it. There's a lot of hunting right. that goes on, um, but it is uh, it is putting out very nice images. I should I should share some with you guys. I, I actually find myself really liking the the color mode. Um, you know, with the front dial, you can, oh, you can sort of change no. some of the JPEG modes. Yeah, I was, I was about to ask about that because that's one of the things we discussed early on when the camera was announced. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the one of the features that everyone said was stupid and we shouldn't like it, but I like it. I really do. It's um, it's kind of like having um, Fuji's film simulations, except you can customize them. So each um, like the color mode and the the color creator mode or whatever. There's two that that are almost identically named, but um, they have this interface where you get a, a circular wheel and you can push and pull the saturation levels of um, different hues mm -hmm. in the color spectrum and thus kind of build your own film look or your own, you know, whatever you want look. Um, and on top of that, you also have a curves adjustment. You know, you can sort of uh, boost or reduce the highlights and the shadows and the midtones nice. by a certain amount. So you can you can really craft quite a quite a distinctive look right in the camera. And then if you use Olympus's viewer software, that's transferred over to the raw files when you pull them onto the um, uh, onto the computer. Well, that's nice. Yeah, it's a pretty cool workflow. I think for people who um, 
want to have the raw files because they they appreciate the editing leeway, but they maybe don't want to spend a lot of time editing. They've got a look that that's kind of consistent for their photography. They build it in the camera and then they just know, like they, they use the JPEGs. They have the raws for archival purposes with those same adjustments imprinted and that's it. You know, that's, it's actually, I, I see a lot of appeal in that workflow, to be honest. Yeah, I, I thought it would be limited to the JPEGs, but if, if there's a way to make them, to embed that data into the raw files, then it's even better. And are, are you sure Lightroom doesn't allow you to pick up that information somehow? Like maybe it's embedded in the camera profile or something? As far as I can tell, it doesn't happen yet, but I, I could be wrong on that because I've I did sort of look to see if that was something that was going to come across in Lightroom, and it and it didn't. Um, what is in place in Lightroom is if you're just shooting one of the standard uh, picture styles, so vivid or natural or portrait or whichever other ones they've got, um, you can select those in Lightroom nice. as as sort of starting points, and they are very faithful to what I'm seeing in the uh, direct from camera JPEGs. So that much is there, but as far as like the custom film style adjustments, that's not, uh, Lightroom doesn't pick that up. Yeah, I see. Well, that's kind of cool to hear because we are probably just weeks away from hearing about the new EM1 Mark II or EM2 or uh, whatever they call it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how, what, if that, you know, those tolerances are kind of carried over and what other kind of things are going to be carried over. Yeah, well, I'm excited because if they bring this build quality over, the EM1 will obviously be weather sealed. Um, I think we can make an educated guess that it's going to have dual card slots because mm -hmm. most cameras that are coming out these days are now implementing that. Agreed. It'll have that 20 megapixel sensor for sure. I expect so, yeah, or at least something similar. I mean, there's there's actually, the rumor sites have been a little ambivalent about what sensor is going to be in it because right. the natural fit would be, yeah, this, this 20 megapixel sensor that we've seen on the Panasonic and, and on the Pen F. But there's also been some rumblings that perhaps uh, they're going to introduce a brand new sensor that does not actually push the megapixel count very high up, but instead focuses on um, read performance and a, a few other things to, to make the most of those megapixels to boost uh, low light capabilities and things like that. So that would be an interesting decision. I, I honestly don't know which I would prefer. Yeah, I would just love to see dynamic range improvements. Man, I'd stick with 16 megapixels if it meant that, you know, those files could be more malleable. Yeah, you and me both. Honestly, I, I would love that because First of all, I don't think that most of us print at sizes where larger than 16 megapixels becomes uh, relevant. But more, more pragmatically, um, 16 megapixel files are a great compromise in terms of storage space and uh, processing heaviness, you know, because I, I, I feel it even dealing with my um, X-Pro 2's RAW files. Like, granted, my computer is like almost a decade old, so I, I'm not a great... Um, you know, person to be talking about this, but uh, they're, you know, editing those files takes some patience. Yes, it does. Even on mine. Yeah. Like any little adjustment to these massive files takes some time unless you're rocking a really powerful computer, which means, you know, for people who are on the go and they're editing on a, on a laptop, like the, the new MacBook one, because they, uh, they want to keep their kit very light and portable. Uh, like edits of Sony RAW files on that computer are going to, you know, not be a great experience. Whereas a 16 megapixel Olympus RAW file is going to, you know, be no problem. And that that's an important consideration, you know, not for everybody, but it's it's not insignificant. Right, definitely. I see it every day between the pictures of my EM10 and the pictures of my A7 II. It's 16 megapixels on one end and 24 on the other, and there's a 
huge difference in the in the time that it takes to go through each, each picture. Even in the library mode, you can see it. Yeah, and generating previews and things like that, it's just like, ugh. Uh, so yeah, there's there's definitely an impact there. And uh, regarding the two, two possible ways Olympus might go for the sensor in the next TM1, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that they did both, that maybe we'll see two variations of the M1. Hmm. Good point. That's what Sony would do, definitely. Yeah. That's what Sony would Yeah, I was going to say that that seems like more of a Sony move than an Olympus move, but you never know. I mean... Because I think there's a very real need for higher megapixel count in the, in the micro four thirds uh, system. Uh, that's something that people are asking for, and I don't see Olympus ignoring that that need in their flagship camera, but there's also a very real need for improved dynamic range and all of that. And perhaps those are uh, opposite, perhaps those are in conflict. And if they are, I don't see how they could choose between doing one or the other. They might as well do both. Well, you know what? I mean, my my thinking on this subject is if I were in Olympus's shoes, I think what, what they've been hinting at um, in terms of just what we're seeing in their existing camera lineup is that they would ideally like to offer that high megapixel count, not necessarily through native sensor resolution, but through the high-res modes that they're putting in. So I think a lot of their R&D work has been in trying to make those high-res image stitching algorithms and the mechanisms behind them work faster so that you don't need to be right. you know, dealing with a completely static subject with a tripod and blah, 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 blah. Because if that becomes the case. Like if the EM1 Mark II has a 16 or an 18 megapixel sensor, you know, that's it's just similar to what we already know, but it has a high res mode that can work in almost any scenario. Suddenly that's a much more um, flexible solution because it means that they don't have to uh, take on the, the relative downsides of upping the megapixel count on the sensor, but they can still offer a way for people who need that tremendous resolution to uh, to access it. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I would love to see something like that. And conceivably, it would be possible with an electronic shutter, which I'm sure the M1 Mark II is definitely going to have. At least it's going to have the option for an electronic shutter. Yeah. So if there are no moving parts, you could conceivably make the image stabilization engine like shift the sensor really quickly, and you wouldn't be as limited as you are with AM5, with AM5 Mark II. Yeah, they could get it to work faster. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, that, that same mode actually exists on the Pen-F as well. Um, I was uh, I was looking for, I, I actually have an opportunity to use it because, uh, including the uh, the focus stacking uh, automatic bracketing stuff because I want to do some um, macro shooting for an upcoming review. And I look forward to trying that high res mode because I've actually not really spent too much time with it on the EM5 Mark II. So I figured this is a good opportunity to just sort of try out its limitations and see um, how well it performs in ideal circumstances, because I'm basically going to be using it as it's intended to be used, which is in a lit studio setting on a tripod with a static subject. Right. So ideally, that should be great, um, but we'll see. I, I look forward to it because I'll, I'll take a normal picture, obviously, and then the high res mode one to see um, just how much extra detail I'm getting for those extra megapixels. Right. All of this is very interesting and it, it makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, I, I remain skeptical. I just don't know how they could get away with releasing a brand new high-end camera that has a lower megapixel count than the Pen F, for example. <laughs> yeah. So that's a that's a hard pill to swallow. I don't know that they can get away with that. 
That's yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe what they'll do is they'll keep it at 20. Like they won't exceed right the pen F, um, but they also won't go lower. And and that would be fine. Again, it's uh, I think that there because of the um the nature of the micro four thirds ecosystem and the sensor size and, and sort of what their goals are, they have to make certain trade-offs. Um and I, I think they can. I mean, they they've been Olympus has traditionally been very um progressive in terms of bringing interesting new technology to the camera yes. um, world. Uh, not necessarily sensor technology in terms of raw specs, but just practical improvements to to camera technology. So I, I look forward to seeing what they'll do because especially since Olympus is a, the kind of company that doesn't really release a new camera uh, as often as certain other companies that we know and love, <laughs> this, whatever they put out, is going to be carrying the Micro Four Thirds ecosystem alongside Panasonic's flagship for the next you know, year and a half or two years. I would even say three years. Exactly. So that's a lot of responsibility. Like they, clearly this is not something that they're, unless they're changing their their product roadmap, um, this is this has to be a big play. Yeah, and the ecosystem is already mature enough that they don't need to come up with a new camera every year. So it's not like Sony that is still playing catch up for the most part. Uh, I think Olympus is reaching a very, very nice stable state in the way that all their lens uh, selection and their camera offerings are are all mature products. And uh, yeah, they're innovating in several different areas, like the high-res mode that you mentioned. And it's very interesting, but uh, those are not as uh, likely to be updated every year, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I'd be fine with that. Again, as long as um, whatever it is, is going to be able to sustain the... Um, Olympus's position and, and Micro Four Thirds's position in among the rest of the mirrorless competition for the next two three years. Uh, I'm you know I'm okay with that. There's also I mean Panasonic bears the other half of it, but I feel like traditionally we always look to Panasonic's offering um, more as a video thing than as a photography tool. Yeah. Um, like the GH4 is a wonderful wonderful video camera and really not a wonderful photo camera at all. Yeah. Um. So, and it's unfortunate, and maybe that's something that they care about. Maybe it's something that they don't care about. Uh, you know, we'll see. And the opposite is true as well. Olympus cameras have never excelled at video. Yeah, I mean, the EM5 Mark II is certainly better than um, anything they've done before, but it's still just not the same kind of thing. Like that's that's obviously not their main focus. Uh, you know, professional video, but which is fair because. To be honest, professional video tends to have some demands that uh, that are difficult to sort of shoehorn in alongside a photography focused tool. Like you've got to really, you know, want to make a video camera to make a video camera that's going to be useful in professional contexts. And exactly. so, yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind that they've done it this way where we sort of look to Olympus if we're interested in photography primarily and we look to Panasonic if we're interested in in video. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Actually, it's it's not even um, it's not even recent news anymore. But it is it is worth mentioning that uh, Picture Life, which was I think a very popular service for online hosting of photos, um, is gone. They they basically surprised most of their users with a "Hey, we're shutting down. Sorry, bye" yeah. <laughs> kind of message. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's reasonable. They cited. Um, challenging economic environment as uh, as the primary factor which uh, you know is is understandable because their one and only business model was you know storing photos for people whereas a lot of the other juggernauts 
offer photo storage as a perk. You know, that's not their main thing. Like Amazon gives you unlimited free storage and everything, but that's not what they're making money on. So they can afford to. Flickr is owned by Yahoo, which makes money in other ways. So um, it's very difficult for a company that is focusing just on that one thing to to continue um, being profitable. So I'm not 100% surprised, but it is unfortunate for all the people who enjoyed it. Yeah, they were basically trying to compete in an impossible situation. So it, it definitely makes sense. Exactly. But the good news is that they haven't let those users, uh, you know, they haven't just deleted all the pictures. So instead, what they made is they made every picture available in SmugMug, yep. which if you guys remember, is a uh, photo storage service that we discussed uh, a few episodes ago when we were talking about how Sanfolio is a horrible company that you should never do business with. Yep. So yeah, the good news is if you were a picture live user, all your pictures should be safe and sound in, in SmugMug now. Uh, so I guess all those people would just have to make the transition to using SmugMug as their main photo storage service, and that's pretty much it. It could have been worse, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it could have been worse. I, I, I like um, I like that they set something like this up where, um, you know, whether or not you want to use SmugMug, at least the option is given to you and you don't have to do any work to make that happen. You know, it's just your, your files are waiting for you if you want them. If not, they'll go away. But you do have that, uh, that transition option, which is, I think, a very nice way to shut down the app. And by the way, I also think it's very nice of SmugMug to take on these terabytes of orphaned photos um, for users that may or may not actually sign up for the service. Right. Uh, so, you know, class act all around. Um, I, I think SmugMug probably will end up taking over most of that business because it's a good, it's a good service and yes. your, your files are already there. Like why not? Right. It's, it's sort of a, a simple decision because it's a lot easier to just activate a SmugMug plan and keep things rather than saying, ah, well, I guess I'll just re-upload everything to who knows what other service elsewhere. So um, yeah, it's it's good. It's a little unfortunate for Picture Life fans, but um, you know it is what it is. Yep. So for the first time ever on uh, Candid FM, we have a sponsor. Is that right? It's exciting. Very exciting. It is right. So we we are officially sponsored by Hedge for Mac. You will recall that we had Paul from Hedge on a previous episode to talk a little bit about the um, the app itself, but. For those of you who didn't hear it, uh, Hedge is a really, really powerful um, tool for ingesting footage from your SD cards or your external drives or whatever it is that you are capturing photos and video on. Um, It has a few key advantages. One of them is that it is secure. So normally if you're just pulling files off of um, a card through Finder, there's actually no way to verify that the data is making it across without any corruption. So... What Hedge does is it's actually just as fast as using Finder, but it's verifying the data during transit and when it's actually copied over. So you know for a fact that your data is intact and there's been no issues in the transfer, uh, which is super important when you're dealing with large amounts of uh, of file data um, and you're you know, it's very important stuff. You don't want to lose um, client work and things like that. Yeah, and especially if you're dealing with video footage, which is particularly... Uh, prone to data corruption. Yeah, that's super important. If you've ever lost uh, some footage due to data corruption, then you know what we're talking about and how important this is. But if you haven't yet, there's still time to make sure you never have to. 
Yeah, and honestly, it's so it's such a beautiful interface. Uh, makes it very easy to do this. And one of the things that I appreciate most about it is that it's uh, it's optimized for parallel workflows. So um, it's very easy to take multiple sources and copy stuff to one destination, or go the other way around, take multiple sources or sorry, one source and copy it to multiple destinations at the same time. Um, for example, if you have it copying to the drive that you're going to work on the footage from and then also to a backup drive in parallel. Um, so that's very handy because it means that you don't have to copy a bunch of things over multiple times. And again, you know that everything that's being copied is being done securely and uh, with full data integrity. Right. And this is where Hedge's speed really comes into play because they somehow managed to do this all of these parallel uh, operations while verifying your data, and it's still roughly the same speed as copying the same file just to one destination over Finder. So it's it's really remarkable what they've been able to achieve. And uh, we're talking from from our own experience. We are happy users of Hedge for Mac. I I use the app every time that I have to copy stuff from my SD cards to the to my hard drives, and I'm just really, really happy with the way it performs and just the peace of mind you get from knowing that all of your footage is secure at all times. Uh, and, and then there's a bunch of advanced features. If you're a tinkerer like, like we are, uh, you'll be glad to know that the app supports uh, scripts. You can do all sorts of clever things with your, with your footage once you've done, once you're done copying. For example, you can tell the app to automatically format the drive after once it's done copying because the best way you can use Hedge is you just dump the entire card uh, onto your hard drive and once it's done you can just format the drive and off you go you're ready to shoot uh, again just take the take the card out and off you go so it's just really powerful you get tons of options if you know a little bit about using Apple script uh, you're gonna feel right at home and all in all, it's a it's a great tool, and we definitely recommend you use it. And to give you a little bit of help uh, to get you to get you even more interested in using the app, we have a very handsome discount for candid listeners. Uh, if you go to hedgeformac.com/candidfm, you will enjoy a twenty percent discount when you purchase the app. This is a great offer, and it's well, like we said, a fantastic app that we're sure you're you're all going to love. So thanks a lot to Hedge for Mac for sponsoring the show. And you guys go and check it out. So guys, here we go. Earlier, we were talking about megapixel counts and printing photos. And and I've been thinking a lot about printing photos over the last uh, few weeks because we got back from our trip from Europe. And uh, generally speaking, my wife and I, Jacqueline and I, we uh, we create like annual photo books of what we... Uh, uh, whatever photos we take of our family, our nieces, our nephews, and uh, whatever we do throughout the year, we do like an annual book each July. Um, and so I'm in the middle right now of doing a bunch of like creating two or three different photo books of different things. And I've, I've been a little disappointed, maybe is the right word, with the options or, or um, the templates that you can create within Apple photo books. Uh, and there's another one I've tried, uh, milk books, which they're, you know, they create cool, they look cool. The final products is, is awesome, but they're just a little bit, I don't, I'm looking for something a little bit more spunky, a little bit different. Uh, and I want to talk to you guys about this because I, I'm just kind of, I've got three Apple photo books sitting on my coffee table and I'd love to try something else. So let's throw it out there. Do you guys print photos in photo books at all, period? Not really, not that often. 
No? Okay. Strike one. <laughs> I've done maybe three or four photo books ever. And, and only two of those were for me. The, the other two or three were for friends and projects that I did that I wanted to give to somebody else. Okay. So those were, those are, not, are already not in my hands and I'm likely not going to ever see them again. But they were nice. Is there like a specific reason why you don't, or like, do you, does it not appeal to you or? It does, it does. And, and the ones that I, that I did for myself, I still keep and, and, and I treasure them because they are, uh, like you said, for trips and things like that, it's a, it's a great way to store the memories, right? And to, to reminisce about right. your experience sure. when, you, when you were there and all of that. So it's something that I, it's a bit of a contradiction because I, I love owning them. But like, perhaps it's what you were kind of alluding to is that the process of creating them is so annoying that yep. it's just not worth it. Because I already have the pictures in my computer and, uh, and I, I can look at them there whenever I want to, which I do. But yeah, there's something else. There's something extra about having them printed on, on an actual book that you can hold in your hands. And it's always easier to show to your, to your family, especially if you have old people in your family yep, <laughs> as I do. So yep. that there's, there's certainly a place for photo books and I, I would love to print more of those. It's just, I, I, I always get the feeling and I think you'll agree with this. I always get the feeling that all of those players, all of those options, they are all nice, but none of them is outstanding. Right. Exactly. I'm looking for something that's like over the top, almost exactly. like this is the undeniable best photo book that you can buy and design and, and anyway yeah, and i, I don't mean, think there is apples such a thing. Is, <laughs> right like apples is so intertwined in in the software like you just you know create boom bam send away done and it's really easy and the templates are actually pretty nice like you know they're not super duper um customizable but they're, they're okay yeah for me the main problem with them is that i hate the photos app yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so i it forces me to export my my pictures from Lightroom to JPEG and then import those JPEGs into Apple Photos and then use Apple Photos too. So it's just a lot of hoops that I have to jump through that I yeah. just don't have the patience for. Right. So I know that I bounced this question in a text format to you guys and Marius had a really good... You, what was the name of the, uh, the recommendation that you had? I looked it up. Yeah, I, I recommended that you try Artifact Uprising, which is ah, that's what it a was. pretty yep. hip um, photo printing service that was actually recently purchased by, uh, actually it's not even that recent now, it's been about a year, if not more, uh, but uh, Visco purchased them. Nice. Um, and they're sort of official partners now, um, which I think was a great pairing, by the way, because they're the two um, companies seem to share uh, an aesthetic sense and just a, a general approach to photography. Uh, so I was happy to see that. But anyway, yeah, uh, Artifact Uprising, I recommended it because I actually haven't printed with them directly, but I've encountered a lot of people um, online who swear by their books as being, in terms of just tactile quality, being some of the best that you can get um, for that amount of money. Okay. So that's, you know, whenever I contemplate doing prints, um, especially like a book print, uh, it's it's absolutely Artifact Uprising that I'm looking at first right um, there are other options like you said but I think the uh, I think the problem that that you're feeling and I absolutely share this is that because of the constraints of running a profitable business doing book prints um, you have to set up a system of templates yes 100 percent right oh, because yeah. you have to standardize 
you have to standardize in order to keep the costs reasonable. And unfortunately, when you do that, you limit the creativity that can be um, applied to the design and layout of these books, which for people like us who are geeky about layouts and and who would really spend a lot of time and, and care uh, designing something that's customized to our specific book's needs, uh, you, you know, when we're presented with these um, limited template tools, we get a little, uh, we feel caged in and it's just, it doesn't feel like a uh, very creative and fulfilling process, even if the end result is a beautiful book, which again, I, from all accounts, that seems to be the case uh, with Artifact Uprising. Uh, and even with Apple Photo Books, by the way, they, the, the quality of the books is is great. It's just, again, the process is often not what we'd want it to be, which is ironic because it's very simple, right? That's right. not the problem. The problem is that it is not as, um, it's not as creative or as free as we might like. And to be honest, I don't even know if there is a way for a company to offer more flexibility on that front because again they're they're running a business that is it depends on things happening at scale right. and things being standardized in order to make it feasible and so once you start giving people more like the trade-off is cost right so is there room in the market for people to say you know what give us your print ready pdfs we don't care how you make it you know we will print it you can choose your materials your whatever whatever right um but that's going to cost like 200 dollars. it's not going to be a $70 book. I honestly would buy it. <laughs> I, I would buy it. <laughs> and you can go to any printer and do that. Like it, the, the, that's an option that you yeah, can always yeah. have. These services, the main advantage that they offer is that precisely they make it possible for anyone to create a beautiful book without having to know anything about design, yeah. without having to know anything about typography. Typography. Oh. And that's, their power is there. They are limited by definition. It's not a, a, a limitation that is unfortunate that I, I'm pretty sure they're happy with where their tools are at right now. Yeah. The problem is that this is not just a software design issue because when you consider printing, once you throw printing into the mix, I mean, you can create anything in software, but once you actually have to print it, the, your, your options become a lot more limited. Yeah. And that's where things become more difficult to handle. Um, so yeah, this is a very complex issue, but I do think we have room for improvement because for example, I'm, I'm looking at Artifact Uprising and I, I love their, their style, the, the, the look of the books, the, the actual books are very similar regardless of the service that you use. They're all hardcover. They're all very nicely stitched, at least in my experience. But the problem is that very few of those services offer designs and templates that I find appealing because they're always so too tacky or or the typography is terrible or whatever so it's yep. it's artifact uprising has like four typography choices right i looked into this part that was the the biggest research part i did and yeah like four you know there's one italicized serif and another sans serif and that's it sans serif whatever you want to call it and and like that's it for for typography choices and so i thought oh this is the most perfect perfect aesthetic looking book i could find i love the style the templates all work, but the typography is horrible. So now I'm like, I'm looking at other options and all the other ones are, yeah. Anyway, I could rant about this for a long time, but what other options are there? Like there, there's Shutterfly, right? Shutterfly, they, they do prints, correct? Do they do books? I have no idea. I have no idea either. Okay. I, in the past, I know I printed, um, my wife and I, we printed all of our wedding photos into a, a book from, it was like a, 
a collaboration effort between Milk Books and Moleskin. Right. You know, the the classic looking note taking books, note, notebooks. And it's actually a really nice, really quite a nice book. Um, but I just want, it, it's got a specific like look to it. It's got the fabric latch thing that goes around it. And it, I, don't, I just wanted like a, oh, like yep. a soft cover yep. book. What do you, what would you call that? And like an elastic anyway, I, I just wanted like a, a different style book. And uh, I just, I'm having a really hard time finding something I like. Right. Yeah. I honestly, if, if any listeners, um, have suggestions for other, um, print services that do good photo books and that allow a certain degree of flexibility that maybe we haven't encountered yet, please let us know because, uh, it's something that I'm also very curious about. I don't really have, um, much need to be printing photo books, uh, in general, but part of that is because, um, like we've said, the, the experience is just not that appealing. So I don't, you know, I think if it was more pleasant and if I could design the books a little more the way that I would like to, I would feel more compelled to to order more books um, because there's something um, this is a bigger topic that we're bleeding into. But there, there's something about the tactility of a printed photo versus its digital counterpart that I think is very valuable and I think is um, worth experiencing as a photographer. There, there's something pretty magical about um taking a photograph and then being able to hold that photograph in your hand, it, it's, it becomes something a little different when you do that uh, versus looking at it versus looking at it on a screen. And that's something like it used to be the case that printing photos was the only way you could look at them, right? Because it was, you know, you film, you process the film and then you get your prints and that was the photograph, right? That was, that was the thing that was the object. But now we are sort of used to photographs as digital files. And that's to us, that is the photograph. Um, so now it's a deliberate choice to make a print of it. And a lot of photographers don't for one reason or another. And there are a lot of reasons not to, but I think for photographs that are meaningful or even just as a, as a means to improve your technique in some ways, it's great to see a photograph printed because people respond to it very differently. I don't, have you guys noticed this? Like if you take the world's most boring picture and you print it, people are suddenly like, oh, you took that photo? Wow. It's, uh, uh. It does happen. It does happen. And I was going to say for most people out there, uh, I'd be willing to bet that it's not even the picture on the computer what that they think of as the picture. It's more like the Instagram post or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I, I just find it very sad that many of the pictures that people upload to Instagram exist only there because the original picture has long been lost. That's something that that almost breaks my heart because <laughs> I'm a really, really huge fan of, of keeping the pictures around for as long as you possibly can. And uh, printing is a great way to do that. And this is where I get you guys hooked to shooting film again. Right. Yeah. Okay. Worth, worth a try, but... <laughs> well, it is the, the main reason that I enjoy shooting film, especially black and white, is that that you still get to do that, that process of from start to finish, and you end up with an actual picture printed on paper that you've done yourself and you've printed yourself. And it's awesome. Like really, really awesome. So question then for you guys, when, when we print, we could probably get into, you know, the, um, theoretical topics and so on, but I'm curious about like, like tech stuff or tech, like specifications of this. So what, like, what do, what pixel per inch, what PPI do I need to export these photos to in order to print them so that they look proper or like, um, 
like what kind of color profile do I need to use to export them properly? Because I'm I'm thinking more beyond photo books. Like I would like to you know print larger photos and maybe put them on a wall or like artifact uprising has a whole pile of those big print options right so what like what kind of photograph do i need to export in order to take a, take advantage of those printing capabilities wow that's a very big can of worms because <laughs> oh, i'm trying here it's sunday morning like i'm like half asleep so i'm struggling but anyway well i mean printing is a fascinating subject but it's complex and uh if all you want is to print pictures uh, at a large size to hang on your wall, then it's not as complicated because it doesn't matter. You don't have to go into color profiles or anything like that. Okay. But most of the printing that gets done these days is commercial printing where color accuracy is very important. So it, you actually absolutely need to have a calibrated printer as well as a calibrated monitor in order to be able to have similar results. You know, that what you see once the picture is printed on the paper looks just like what you see on the monitor. And that's very, very <laughs> complex. I don't really, I mean, it's out of my depth. I don't really, I can't tell you exactly what tools you need to use or, or what what process you have to follow, but I know there are dedicated uh, hardware calibrators for your monitor, for your printer. And once you get it, everything set up, then yeah, it's really straightforward. But getting there is the is the difficult part. Yeah, it's the initial setup that's the problem because you're dealing with color profiles that you have to bring from camera to editing suite to output to printer. And the color spaces of digital photos versus printed photos are different. So exactly, that's one of the biggest struggles in... in like th This is what a lot of the labs do for you so you don't have to worry about it because you're sending them a file that's in the sRGB color space, um, which is for digital things, um, yeah. whereas in print, you deal with CMYK, which is a totally different animal. And maintaining color accuracy between those is just a, a big headache. Um, and it's one that thankfully, most of the time, unless you're doing your own printing, you don't have to worry about because again, the labs are equipped to do this. You just send them the file and they know that you want it to look the way that it does on the computer. So they, you know, they handle it for you. And then you can, depending on the lab, like some of the more mom and pop style ones will actually let you get involved in that process because some photographers are very particular about how they, uh, you know, want their prints to look, which is, you know, it's cool. If you understand that stuff, it's great to dig in, you know, yeah. get your hands dirty, but it's a process. I think for the, for people like us who are maybe more interested in just um, the output, the, the final print and not necessarily so concerned about doing it ourselves, um, the biggest thing to keep in mind is just viewing distance, I think uh, it, it's fair to say, because when you're talking about um, a wall print, you can actually have a very different pixel density than you would for a print that is going to be looked at from, you know, two feet away yeah. versus 20 feet away. And that's the, you know, you'll find charts where people are like, okay, if the viewing distance is two meters, then export at 260 PPI or export at whatever. And as you, that's why... Um, Apple is able to, for example, for the um, shot on iPhone campaign, yeah. make these gigantic billboards out of eight megapixel photos because they know that they're putting these billboards on the sides of buildings or on, you know, wherever they're putting them so that the viewing distance is like, you know, a quarter of a kilometer. It's not, <laughs> you know, no one's looking at them up close. And so um, they're able to do that and they're able to make them 
look very impressive, uh, even though the the raw resolution isn't there. Like there's, in order to have that size print at 300 PPI, you would need a an insane number of megapixels. It's it would be totally impractical. And because of um, the way our eyes work, it's just not necessary. Again, you, you sort of make that compromise. You say, okay, look, if people are going to walk right up to my billboard, it's going to look like crap. But that's not how people look at billboards. They look at them in passing and from a distance. So I can make certain compromises um, along the way. And that's honestly, if you look at that chart um, and you sort of have an understanding of where you want to put the photo, uh, you're fine. And that's the very the very tricky thing that people don't necessarily really realize is that it might be harder to print a picture, uh, you know, at a one meter uh, length size, because you're going to want to hang that that up on your wall, and you're going to be looking at it from real close. Uh, whereas if you were to print that same picture and put it up on a billboard, you might need, uh, like, you know, a smaller resolution to to be able to do that, and that's something that kind of breaks the minds of of a lot of people because. Well, you're telling me that to print that huge picture, I need fewer megapixels than to just hang the picture on my wall? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense, though. I, it makes perfect sense. And it's something I hadn't thought about. So I have learned something today. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly, that's the thing that you need to be most concerned about when you're exporting the file from Lightroom for print is just, first of all, um, where do you want to put the photo and what size are you printing it? At. And then you just sort of take a look at one of those charts of which there are hundreds available online and you just, you know, make sure the settings line up and then you hand it to the printer and they'll do the rest for you in terms of the color and all that crap. They, they sort of make sure you don't have to worry about it. Right. Would you guys say that it's worth it to buy a really good printer and do the, everything yourself at home if you're serious about printing? Or is this something that labs, professional labs are always going to be better at? I would say that the cost is almost always in favor of doing it through a lab unless the volume of prints that you're making like if you're doing client work and you're consistently getting large print orders um, and you know what you're doing and you want to control the process and the time is worth it for you then it can sometimes be worth it to have your own printer but i think for most people um, these days especially it's really not practical outside of a very limited set of professional contexts to own the entire printing process yourself. I agree. Uh, I just, I don't see, the, the cost of ink and paper alone gets crazy fast. So uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. And the printers are very expensive. Yeah. G good printers, I mean, and they require a, a lot of maintenance. So yeah. Having said that, um, I bought one. Good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I well so indirectly I I with my um the last time my my mom bought a camera um it was uh it was at Vistec and they had a promotion where you could actually get one of Canon's um I I would say entry level professional photo printers right. for like a hundred bucks or something like that um at which price point we figured why not it's you know it's worth having fun and and just having that available to try and. Um, it is fun. Uh, the, the ink is expensive. The, uh, expensive. the paper is also expensive if you get good stuff. But it is kind of satisfying to be printing your own photos. Um, it's also very sobering because often, um, again, if you, if you don't really know what you're doing and you don't read the instructions in terms of color profiles and things like that, you end up with photos that look very strange coming out of the printer. <laughs> um, and it's a fairly expensive mistake. Um, 
But once you get past that stage, it's it's kind of nice, you know, to be able to just say, hey, I, I took this cool photo. I kind of want a wall print. And hey, I'm able to do that without going anywhere or waiting or anything like that. So there's there's pros and cons. But I think like realistically, if if I have my pragmatic hat on, it, it doesn't make any sense for most people to, to own a photo printer. Right. Maybe at those price points that you mentioned, 100 bucks is something you can... Yeah. Exactly. If you can do it for 100 bucks uh, and, and you're only doing it occasionally and you're willing to do the upkeep and all that um, and, and learn the, the color stuff, then yeah, by all means, it's fun. You know, if, if you're a geek, that's something that's that's just fun to do. But how big can you print with one of those? Um, I can do 11 by 17, I think is the limit. Well, that's okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty darn big. Yeah, so it's not bad. Like that's 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 as much as I would realistically be printing outside of a few like edge cases where I'm doing larger canvas prints or something like that. I mean, that's that's a pretty hefty size and you put it in a frame with a little bit of a matte border around it and that's a big wall print. Nice. Yeah. And they look great, by the way. I mean, I was the I think the last print that I did from one was uh was from the Fuji either the X100T or the XT1, I don't remember which it was. So that's a 16 megapixel image. And um, it looks amazing. The detail is just outstanding. So, you know, there's obviously you can get more detail if you're printing extremely high resolution images at extremely high detail levels. But um, I I think the difference when you actually look at these prints is negligible in a lot of cases, especially from wall print viewing distances. Yeah. So, what kind of paper then do you do? Did you print on? Is is it that glossy stuff, or do can you buy matte? paper you can buy all sorts of crazy (laughs) papers so if you ever go to uh henry's or vistech and and you go to their uh, this is for us canadians by the way in the u.s you have other stores and other where other places in the world um but you go to your camera shop and they'll they'll probably have a section dedicated to papers and the one here in downtown toronto there's like an entire floor with nothing but paper um and frames and things like that and it's just it's insane so you get first of all variations in color you know 400 different kinds of off-white and then you've got glossy and degrees of glossy and you've got matte and degrees of matte and then you've got all sorts of textures like there's this one um paper type i I forget now that's extremely rough it's like it's almost like canvas but it's not um and doing a black and white print on that paper looks so cool um i don't know why it's just you know there's there's a lot of choice like with anything else and um you can kind of go crazy buying all sorts of different kinds of paper. What I found very helpful was this um, this photo printer that, that I got, uh, which is a Canon, by the way. I forget the model number. I'll have to look it up. But um, when we got it in this deal, they also included a sampler pack of, I think, 20 or 30 different kinds of paper. Um, and there was like a couple of sheets of each. And that was great because going through those gives you a very good idea of what kind of paper works best with what kind of photo and in what kind of viewing context. And it's something that you can't really, um, it's it's harder to find out if you're just staring at a bunch of paper boxes in a store. Definitely. Yeah, I'm looking at the wire cutter right now and they've got their, their choice for a photo printer is the Epson SureColor P600. And it's an, about a thousand dollar photo printer. hi yi yi <laughs> Yeah. And it'll have like eight or 10 print cartridges in that in that uh, in that uh, price range well if you think that's complicated can you imagine what it is to print uh, optically you know from the negative with an optical printer and optical photo paper that's even even worse because on top of all those considerations that you just mentioned like the grain the texture of the paper the degree of glossiness 
then you have the light sensitivity to consider as well. Yeah. So that's yeah, it's a it's a very very complicated. So this is something that you, most people don't want to do on their own. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think that's the verdict. And maybe that's why those photo book options are so poor. Be- not poor. They're not poor. That's a bad word. They're just not as customizable, I guess, because there's. I didn't realize how many variables there were behind all of this. Right. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to get at earlier is that there's so much that goes into making quality prints that we just kind of don't know and don't understand because we, we often don't have reason to. And the, the way that these photo labs work, they've kind of just taught us that, oh, I hand them a photo and then a little while later I get the thing back and it looks the way I expect and it's on the paper. I it's just we don't we don't understand how much goes on behind the scenes to make that happen until we start trying to do it at home. And then it's like, oh, my God, now I understand what's going on. And that's why I'm saying that I think if you're not interested in becoming aware of that process and involved in it, then it's almost always more um, not just practical, but cost effective to just let the labs do their thing. And if you're curious, just ask them, right? Because you can, for a lot of them, that's what I'm saying, like outside of the big um, retail style labs, you can very often ask them questions and say, hey, can we try it on this kind of paper? Can we, you know, do this with the colors and blah, blah, blah. And they're often willing to do that for you, I find. So, um, and especially once you've, you know, made a bit of a relationship with them and you're bringing them print work pretty consistently they can help you develop the style that you think works best. Um, and that's kind of nice because that's honestly, as a photographer these days, um, I don't know how many people are buying prints from jobs in a lot of cases outside of the wedding context. And part of if part of your value proposition is my prints look different than what you'll get if you take them to Costco or wherever and just have them printed uh, at, at your local drugstore or something like that that's there's some value there you know you you pay more to have me print them for you or my lab print them for you but you also get photos uh, or prints rather that are um, considered and uh, match the aesthetic that I want for them as the photographer and as your you know image maker of choice good chat and like it's a huge rabbit hole at the end of the day like yes yes um, it is yeah yeah you, you can get into you can get into all of these uh, different ways of printing. Um, but then like, I, I always bring it back to these, like you buy these magazines and they're printed in w- one way or another. And this magazine has that kind of material. And I want to mimic that photo book or that magazine in the way I make this photo book. And anyway, that's kind of where I've been, where I've been kind of coming from this from is I, I have this thing in mind with the specific type of paper in mind. And Oh, you guys have just shot down my dreams today that I can't make the perfect book that I want unless I want to spend hundreds of dollars and have somebody just make a custom book from a PDF. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd actually be very interested if you found a local print shop, again, one of these sort of smaller specialized print shops, and you just took that magazine and took your photo and put it on their counter and said, hey, I want to make a photo book. I really like what's going on in this magazine in terms of whatever it is, the color, the paper quality, blah, blah, blah. I have, you know, I will hand you a PDF if you tell me the specifications. What's it going to cost? How can we do this? And whatever. Like for right. them, it's a, it's an interesting project. It's it's worth doing um, just to see because it might not be unreasonably expensive. And I think that especially for, for someone like you, Josh, who can really appreciate it, uh, you might be a lot more satisfied with <laughs> the result. Sounds like you're getting homework, Josh. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It does. I might have to ask for more directions on where to create this PDF as well. And that might be another entire massive rabbit hole I don't want to get into. 
Yeah, that's potentially true because... <laughs> no, but if you do try it, I think it's, this is worth following up on because it's, it's a very interesting part of the photo discussion that we don't really talk about that often. And I, for one, I'm curious about what your options would be if you were to do what Marius just said. Oh, man. <laughs> I've got no time as it is, but here we go. I guess I've got all day to just work on something new. What piece, what program do I need to download, guys? Well, okay, so th this is what I'm saying. Like, I wouldn't even bother with that yet. I would, I would first find the lab and talk to them because they'll be able to say, you know what, we can't, uh, you know, we either we don't care what software you use or they'll mo more than likely they'll just give you specifications they'll be like look set it up so that it's this many millimeters by this many millimeters so that we have bleed room to cut it when we're doing the print stuff and then this is how many pages it needs to be as a minimum and then whatever happens on those pages we don't really care just make sure it's in this color space or with these profiles or they'll say you know what don't worry about that we'll handle that like whatever it's it's a conversation that you can have with them um, and they'll probably be able to guide you more precisely because like we can tell you what app you can have to design this um it doesn't have to be indesign it's it could be affinity designer it could be i mean you could do it in photoshop it doesn't hmm. it doesn't make a difference right. really as long as the the file is set up the way that they need it to be um but they'll be able to tell you what they need for best results yeah because at the end of the day it could just be designing each page of the book the way that you would want to like you have you start off with a white rectangle that is always the same size and you do whatever you want with that get it to them and you just tell them make this happen and that's it yeah yeah so it, it would be fun though it would be fun and i honestly talking to you about this has made me want to try out um just printing something with artifact uprising because again i've i've heard so much about them but i haven't actually used them and i feel like i'm i should actually buy something so that I understand what everyone's talking about and whether or not I agree with them. Yeah, another another problem with this is that since this includes actual printing of a physical object, uh, it's tied to where you are in the world. And maybe the... But well, I'm just looking at Artifact Uprising and it looks like they, like they offer services in Europe, uh, EU, within the European Union states. But uh, that might not be true for every uh, printing service that you check on the web. So keep that in mind when, you, hmm. when you're trying to look them up. Because yeah. I, I use one that's called Hoffman, but I don't think they offer services in the US, for example. I'm, I'm not sure about Canada, but I'm betting against it as well. So. Well, I don't know where, to the, where this ends, but I am now deep into Google and looking at all these design things. Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Always here to help. <laughs> so Affinity Designer, you said, we can cut it before this, but Affinity Designer, InDesign, what else? InDesign looks good, but God. InDesign, InDesign is very, very difficult. Um, oh, okay. It's not, it's really not an intuitive piece of software and it has a lot of functionality that goes beyond what you would ever need for laying out a photo book like this, which is why, it, I mean, technically InDesign is the standard for doing any sort of print prep work at all like every magazine you've ever read is probably laid out in InDesign okay um but it's also it, it's just not fun to use great um whereas something like affinity designer is very fun to use it's very intuitive it's mac native it's extremely quick it's actually affordable yeah it's it's affordable it's it's really a great piece of software to do stuff anytime we do anything for print i'm doing it in affinity designer um it just it's much it's much more straightforward um 
yeah, so I, I recommend doing that. And like uh, Alvaro was saying, you just you set up a bunch of pages, you lay them out however you want, and they'll tell you specifically. They'll give you down to the millimeter. Um, and if you need uh, crop marks or, or bleed or anything like that, you can actually um, set those as export options in Affinity Designer. So you don't have to like make them manually or anything like that. Okay. Um, right. So yeah, they'll and they all they want is a PDF file. They'll give you the specifications. So uh, you go from there. Cool. Alvaro, have you ever done um, a bunch of black and white printing and noticed different? Because one of the things that the dude was telling us about when when we got this printer, I was talking about, is that because there are fewer uh, cartridges, yeah. uh, different cartridge types for the ink. Um, there is supposedly a, a noticeable difference in the way that the black and white um, gradients right. look. And I was wondering if you had any experience with like doing prints on printers that have a lot of different ink options versus a more limited set and if it's like actually a meaningful difference. Right. I, I don't. I've never printed on black and white. All of my black and white printing has been film-based printing. So Right. Okay. Nope. Cool. Yeah, just curious because it's uh, you know that's like Josh was saying the the leap in price is dramatic once right. you start getting into these um, higher end photo printers. It's just insane how much they cost. Right. And I think I genuinely think that uh, printing black and white film is still competitive because you can enlarge up to roughly yeah the size that you mentioned eleven by seventeen is something you can definitely do out of a thirty five millimeter film frame, and and it'll look amazing. If you do, if you have a nice optical printer, yeah. uh, and larger, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's that's the extent to which I've printed in on on black and white. Cool. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I'm. It's not like I'm going to go buy a better printer. Uh, I've been very happy with what I get out of this one. So. Yeah, I, I don't think I would either. I mean, I've all, all of the pictures that I have ever printed for basic home use have been with traditional, uh, you know, inkjet uh, printers that are not even photo specific. So. And those are fine if, if, if what you want is to print some pictures that you took casually with friends and hung them up on the wall as memories, that those are perfectly fine. I'm imagining that your printer might be even better because it, it, it will have probably even better resolution and, and yeah, fidelity, basically. Yeah, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.